be seated. The emblem of the Marine Corps depicts an eagle that is perched atop a globe, and the globe is superimposed upon an anchor. The eagle connects the Marine Corps with the United States of America. The anchor represents the amphibious nature of the Corps. And then the globe is or signifies the commitment that the Marine Corps has to go and fight for our country in any clime, in any place, 24-7. That emblem to me represents the readiness of the Marine Corps and readiness of our military, of all the branches of our military, is a very high demand, but because of our world, a very necessary one. Well, likewise, the Christian is to be ready to stand firm in every clime, in every place, every minute of every day to fight the battle, the spiritual warfare that is before us. And the Apostle Paul speaks today in the first part of verse 14 of Ephesians 6 about this issue of the Christian being ready to fight. Now, we've been looking at Ephesians 6, and we've been looking at verses 10 through 13 the last couple of Sundays. And so, But I want to start with verse 10 and read through the first part of verse 14 just to give us context. Now, hear the word of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally... Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Today we'll be looking at the belt. We'll be looking at truth. And then we'll conclude by considering standing firm, girded in the belt of truth. Pray with me. God our Father, we uh, thank you that you have provided all that we need to stand firm in this evil day, to withstand the attack of the enemy, to prevail in the spiritual battle. And today as we look at this first piece of armor, that you would guide us and direct us and encourage us with what the Apostle Paul is teaching, that we must always be ready, girded in truth. And we ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So you'll find a sermon outline that is printed in your bulletin. And this, this first point that we come to is uh, the belt itself. And there, there's no doubt that the Apostle Paul is using here the armament that we might find on a first century Roman soldier as he helps us understand what he's teaching about putting on the whole armor of God. And so we want to look first at this belt of truth, and, and the belt for a Roman soldier served at least four purposes. First of all, it was a belt that was useful to tuck his tunic in. Now, the standard dress in the ancient world was a tunic. Just think of, think of a robe that would that would flow below the knees. And can you imagine a soldier who was in combat trying to navigate basically a robe below his knees? He would be encumbered, wouldn't he? And so one purpose of this belt was for the soldier to reach down to pull up his tunic above his knees and tuck it in so that he could have mobility, so that he could be agile and maneuver in the battle. Secondly, the belt was to attach other pieces of armor, specifically the sword that we'll get to in several weeks and the breastplate that we'll talk about next week, the breastplate of righteousness. And thirdly, this belt was for both decoration and protection. Now, I have a belt and a buckle on, and it's a very useful uh, part of my attire. It would be quite comical to you if I didn't have it on, stumbling about up here in the pulpit without a belt. But the belt that we have here in Ephesians 6 is not the belt like I have on, just a strap of leather with a little buckle. This was more like an apron. And typically these, these belts had strips of leather that hung down the front and down to somewhere mid-thigh or so. And they were often decorated with metal as well as leather. Sometimes they carried the insignia of rank of that soldier. They would oftentimes jingle in battle, the sound of all that jingling to strike fear in the enemy. But it was also to, to protect the pelvic area and the, and the upper thighs for that uh, soldier as well. And so it was for decoration and it was also for protection. And then the fourth service or way that, that this particular belt was useful in that it communicated a soldier's readiness to fight. When he had girded his loin in the King James with the belt of truth had his tunic tucked into that belt, sword on, breastplate connected. He was ready to fight. And the one thing that we need to see about this belt of truth is that it represents a soldier's readiness, state of readiness to fight. That's the main point that Paul is making here. So in verse 14, we are told, the first part of verse 14, fasten the belt, supposedly fasten, fasten the belt around your waist. In the King James Version, it reads, having your loins girt about, girt means to fasten around. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, 
take up verse 13 and put on verse 11, the belt of truth, verse 14a, and fasten it tightly about your waist and be ready to fight. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. I mean, all that Roman soldier belt stuff is fun and interesting. But actually, the Greek grammar is more instructive because the form of the verb that Paul uses to fasten or King James to girt is a participle which denotes a continuing action. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that it is not the case that we need to have been ready at some date in the past or we need to be ready an hour from now or hey you be ready next week at two o'clock in the afternoon on a particular day that's not what he's saying he is saying having having fastened the belt in other words we are to be in a continual state of readiness do you get that that is the most important point of this particular piece of armor the Christian is to be in a continual state of readiness to fight the battle. In every clime, in every place, every minute of every day, girded with truth. That's what Paul is telling us here. Fasten that belt, gird yourself so with truth. Take that tunic, tuck it in so that you will be so agile that you can dodge every fiery dart that Satan fires at you. That you can outmaneuver the enemy because you move so quickly and so swiftly. The believer is to be ready in every clime, in every place, every minute of every day to fight the battle. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, where there Peter is exhorting the believers at this point in his letter to live holy lives. Be prepared every day to be who you are, as God is holy, you are holy if you are God's child. And he says this, therefore preparing, be ready, preparing your minds for action. Prepare yourself to live holy, Peter says. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be ready, a very central and foundational principle in Scripture, be ready with the belt of truth. There's a news article that came out over the summer that reports a meeting or a congressional hearing that featured our Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, and he was before some congressional committee, and they were talking about the, the readiness of the United States military. And Mattis is very concerned that the readiness of the United States military has eroded over the last several years. And this is what he reported to the committee. I am shocked 
by what I've seen with our readiness to fight. And you know, brothers and sisters, as we look at our lives, as we look at the lives of other Christians, we may be shocked at the lack of readiness in being girded with the belt of truth. And be clear about this, if we are not girded with truth, we will not be able to withstand the battle. We will fall. How are we to be ready? And Paul says, we are to be ready by girding ourselves, by fastening tightly about us uh, truth. As we look at this second point, truth, I want to just give you a definition of a worldview. I mean, we, we, in the Christian circles, worldview is talked about almost nonstop, and rightly so. We need to talk about it. And here's at least one definition that's, that's kind of a general, basic definition of a worldview that could apply to any worldview. Here it is. A worldview is a framework from which we view reality and make sense out of life and the world. And I think that's a pretty basic general definition of any worldview. And here's the thing. Every single person has a worldview. They have some framework that governs how they view life and how they live, what they think about this and why they do that. Everybody is governed by a worldview. The question is not, do we have a worldview? The question is, which worldview is operating in our minds and in our hearts? The George Barna, who's famously known for all these surveys, and he's really good at it, did a survey, and he was doing this survey for the American Culture and Faith Institute, and here's the, and this is a recent survey, this is not 10 years ago, this is recent, and here's the question that was asked. The question is, how many Americans have a biblical worldview? I wish we had time for me to ask you, what do you think? What do you think the results were? How many Americans have a biblical worldview? And what Barna found is that in the general population, 10% of Americans are likely to have a biblical worldview. In the age range 18 to 29, 4% are likely to have a biblical worldview. And here is the statistic that just shocked me of those who identified themselves as born-again Christians, not just a member of some church, not just, I think I'm a Christian, those who identify themselves as born-again, a serious Christian, Barna found that 31% of born-again Christians are likely to have a biblical world view. Is it any wonder so many Christians fall in battle? That statistic, even if it's half true, is shocking. The question 
this, this really impressed me. Barna didn't go out and say, hey, are, are you a born-again Christian? Yeah, man, I'm a born-again Christian. All right, do you have a biblical world life view? Yeah, no. No, the way the questions of, of, of this uh, survey were formed, it really didn't deal with, do, do you think you have a Christian world life view or you don't? It actually measured behavior. In other words, what Barna said is that, that, that I'm not as concerned with what people think they have a biblical world and life view, but does their behavior show that they're likely to have a biblical world and life view? And when we look at it from that perspective, the statistic is even more troubling to me. That what it indicates is that we have a bunch of folk out there that identify themselves as born-again Christians that based on their behavior, that is what I know of God's Word and what I believe in my heart I actually do, only 31% were found to have a biblical world and life view. That's really telling, isn't it? What we know we are to believe, and what we believe we are to do. There is to be integrity between mind and heart. And the true measure of a worldview is I believe X to be the truth of Scripture, and X is reflected in how I live. That helps us understand what Paul means by truth. He's not merely talking about intellectual knowledge. He's not merely talking about some subjective integrity. He is talking about both. This is what God's word says is true. I believe it subjectively. I embrace it in my heart to such an extent I actually do it that's truth in terms of what Paul is saying here today God's object of truth in John 17 17 Jesus said your word O Lord is truth God has revealed his truth to us in the pages of Scripture and today, as we recited the Apostles' Creed, a beautiful summary of these great and glorious truths that we find in Scripture itself. The truth about our triune God, the truth about the redeeming work of Christ, the truth about the doctrine of salvation, the truth about the church, the truth about eternal life, the truth about the second coming. And so we are to know truth. We have been blessed infinitely by God ordaining that we know him through his word that we know truth that's a privilege so many who do not have their hearts and minds enlightened by the power of the Holy Spirit do not know truth but you and me 
by God's grace and by his redeeming work in our lives, by his enlightening work in our lives, we are able to know truth. But then, what do we do with that truth that we know intellectually? We are to embrace it. We are to believe it. We are to say, this object of truth is true. And my conviction is that it is true, such that my life actually reflects it. And Jesus said something in John 17, 17, I just quoted, he said, your word is truth, but the phrase just before that, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. In other words, God's truth is to be for the purpose of holy living. The truth being fleshed out, lived out in the lives of his people. Sanctify them by your truth. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxis, right doctrine to right living. We've seen that all throughout the book of Ephesians thus far. That's actually the, the basic division of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters, orthodoxy, four through six, orthopraxis, right living. What I know, what I believe about what I know, being represented in how I live. It may indicate this statistic that Barna has uncovered, 31% of born-again Christians are likely to have a biblical worldview that many of us may know the truth, but we really don't believe it because we don't live it out. General Mattis was shocked. This, this, this statistic should shock us. Because what it indicates is a gross lack of readiness in the church to stand in the spiritual battle. And it's no wonder we have such issues with Christians standing faithfully. If one knows that the Bible says abortion is wrong but lacks the belief of it, then we really shouldn't be surprised when Christians have abortion and support those who have abortions. If the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman, then, but yet that truth is not really embraced in the heart, we shouldn't be surprised that Christians support same-sex marriage. I mean, take, take any truth statement of Scripture that, that you like and apply the same. If it's not believed in the heart, if it's not embraced in the heart in such a way that it's reflected in how one lives, and we shouldn't be surprised when Christians fall and set aside truth. Dr. Hodge of Old Princeton said this about truth in verse 14a, and I quote, but it means truths subjectively considered, that is, the knowledge and belief of the truth, this is the first and indispensable qualification for a Christian soldier to enter on the spiritual conflict ignorant or doubting would be to enter battle blind and lame. Nothing but the truth of God clearly understood and cordially embraced will enable him to keep his feet for a moment 
before these celestial potentates. Truth alone, as abiding in the mind in the form of divine knowledge, can give strength or confidence even in the ordinary conflicts of Christian life, much more in any real evil day. Do you know the truth of God's word? And do you embrace it in your heart by faith such that that truth is actually reflected in how you live? If you answer no to that question, in Hodges' words, you are going into the battle blind and lame. And you should expect to fall. God's truth is how we ready ourselves for the fight. And God's truth gives confidence as we take a stand you know, the eagle depicted on the marine emblem I mentioned in the very beginning actually has a banner that is flowing from its beak. And on that banner are these two words in Latin, semper fidelis, always faithful, the motto of the Marine Corps. The, the passage that Tom read earlier from Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 5 depicts Messiah, this branch of the root of Jesse, having a belt of righteousness and faithfulness. In other words, it's indicating that, that Messiah is going to be faithful, girded in faithfulness as the redeemer of God's people. And I believe that the belt of truth that, that Paul mentions here can be viewed in a similar way that it is the belt of truth that signifies that we are ready but also is that which is enables us to be faithful to stand faithful in the battle that is God's truth is our confidence and should be our power source so to speak in standing firm in, in the battle. Okay, so let me give you a couple examples here as we look at this third point about, about the stand. I believe that the Bible teaches that Adam and Eve were historical figures. That Adam took the dust of the ground and formed the little clay man and breathed life, breathed a soul, breathed the spirit into that man and he became a living being. And then a little bit later in Genesis 2 that God took a rib from Adam and created Eve and that they actually existed. They were historical figures. I, I acknowledge that that is a truth that is reflected in Scripture. What about you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Okay, good, great. But I also embrace it in my heart that Adam and Eve were historical figures. And I believe it to be true. It's my deeply held conviction 
and I take a stand on that truth, that truth is girt about me. And so when some, even in our own circles of, of the Reformed faith, even those who would, would claim to be evangelicals and may be very, very sincere folk, cast a shadow of doubt on the historicity of Adam and Eve, that by the way, the doctrine of sin and original sin depends on the historicity of Adam and Eve to a very large degree. The doctrine of the second Adam, really, Christ coming and doing what Adam was unable to do, depends on the historicity of Adam and Eve. The historicity of Adam and Eve is no just simply secondary or tertiary light theological issue. It really is, I think, a very important fundamental issue. And so the, the, I believe the Bible says it is true. I embrace it as true. It is my deeply held conviction. And in love, I'm going to stand on it and trust God that I will not get on that slippery slope of the erosion of doctrinal fidelity in the church. couple is struggling in their marriage and they they're in a fight they don't like one another and they got some really significant issues he doesn't meet my needs she does not respect my authority and they are battling day and night, wearing each other out, wearing out the counselor. <laughs> it's wearing. I don't mean, mean to make light of it because this, the, this is, I'm not, I don't have any one of you in mind, so be, be at peace. <laughs> but this is a real life issue. Husband and wife sometimes are at war with one another and their marriage is on the line and this is what they conclude it would just be easier to end it all and go start over again right and yet a couple like that who knows the truth of God that marriage is till death do us part and who actually embrace it in their heart as true is my deeply held conviction. Even with the plethora of problems they have, even with the deep, deep wounds that each have created in one another, girded with truth, objective truth, subjective belief and conviction, they join hands and fight together for their marriage. And then there's a guy, could be a woman in our day. I think we pick on guys too much in the area of pornography. What about you ladies in the area of novels and romance stories? I watch enough Jane Austen movies to know a woman can, can actually, that can affect her in similar ways as a man looking at, at pornography. 
and cause a real rift in marriage. Well, my husband's not Mr. Darcy. I hope what I just said is true, but, but I do know this. A love story can be just as pornographic to a woman as an image to a man. And the consequences can be the same. But I want to pick on the men because I am one. And so, man, you're there by your computer, and you struggle on and off with pornography. And you're there. It's a battle, isn't it? What do you do? You know what God's word says sexual morality is a sin. You know the, what God's word says about being faithful to your wife? Now, even though looking at pornography is not adultery yet, it can cause such difficulties in the relationship between a husband and wife. And so there, there's, there's the temptation. Well, man, you should already have the belt of truth fastened tightly around your waist. You should already have your tunic tucked into your belt. And you're free and agile to seek the Spirit, to pray for strength, and to say, I know sexual immorality is sin. I embrace it as truth. It's my conviction. And by God's grace girded in truth, it will be reflected in my life. And you turn the computer off and go to bed. The Christian warrior is to be ready, having already studied God's word, having already explored what God's word says is true, a Christian warrior, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, needs to embrace those truths of Scripture in his heart, having a deeply held conviction that God says they're true, I believe that they are true, such that they are reflected in my life. We are to be ready, girded with the belt of truth for battle in every clime, in every place, every minute of every day. And God has given you and me the readiness in the belt of truth. Take it up, put it on, fasten it tightly and stand faithful in the battle. Let us pray. Father, I ask you to work in the life of each one here today that we would see this gift of your word. Lord, that we would know the truth, that we would know it in our hearts, believe it, have a deeply held conviction about it, such that it is reflected in our lives. Lord, that we would see that as part of the armor being ready for the battle that is already upon us. I pray, Father, that we might be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.